Hello and welcome back to The Games Press, the podcast where I talk to interesting people from across the games media about their work. My name is Chris Bratt and I'm a part of the People Make Games team. You can find us on YouTube. And today's guest is the brand new editor-in-chief of Kotaku, Patricia Hernandez. Now, I think it's fair to say that Kotaku finds itself at a bit of a crossroads right now following the departure of several editorial staff last year, many of which cited issues with the site's corporate owners as they left. To quote former staff writer Gita Jackson in her leading post last January, can we just say specifically that Jim Spanfeller has made it impossible for us to work here? Spanfeller is the CEO of GeoMedia, the media company which encompasses sites like Kotaku, Gizmodo and Deadspin, although the latter saw its entire staff, some 20 writers and editors, resign in protest of corporate bullshit. All that is to say, Patricia is taking the reins at an extremely challenging moment for Kotaku, and we'll be getting into that in more detail in this interview. You'll also hear me reference an article that was published before Patricia took over as editor, and that she in fact removed from the site on her very first day. Now, we intentionally avoid going into specifics when we discuss this piece because of the sensitive nature of the article, but to give some important context... It was published by Kotaku in 2019 as part of a wave of people coming forward to share their experiences of sexual harassment and assault while working in the games industry. In this case, a survivor quoted in that article later asked Kotaku to remove the description of the assault they'd experienced some months after publication, and in fact, after the article's original author had left the team. They then kept asking publicly for it to be removed or edited for over a year to no avail, which was clearly very distressing for them. It's not exactly clear what happened behind the scenes at Kotaku during this period, but Patricia decided to finally remove the article outright as she was brought on board to lead the team. Again, we won't be naming the survivor or discussing any of the real details of that article during this podcast, but hopefully that light context will help you understand the discussion. Finally, if you do get something out of this podcast and want to support it, as well as the other work we're doing at PMG, please consider taking a look at patreon.com forward slash people make games. We're a small team and every single penny helps us keep the light switched on and continue to do the work which we care about the most. And now, Patricia Hernandez. Hello, Patricia. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? I suddenly feel extremely self-conscious that I just referred to it as a show after exactly one episode, so I might rein that in a little bit. Well, it's going to be a show. I feel more comfortable saying podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. That's better. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, you're the the new editor-in-chief at Kotaku. Congratulations. Thank you. I know it's a little strange in some ways because I haven't I've announced it on Twitter, but I haven't like posted something on Kotaku itself just because of uh, the strange timing of it. You know, coming mm-hmm. aboard two weeks before E3, it was very much like heads down, and now I'm taking a step back to like right, yeah, like we can actually breathe again. Um, that's something I wanted to quickly mention is that. Can we talk about the fact that your new job got leaked by another video game publication? Like the Washington Post scooped you some some six days before even you announced it on Twitter. I was wondering, is that is that funny? Is that weird? Is it frustrating? Like I don't I don't know what that feels like. Well, it was a little it was an interesting situation at the time because it initially did not start as an inquiry about the job. It started as an inquiry for for something else that I did not want to talk about. I, I thought it was it, it was funny just to be on the other side of it, and I think some good perspective to to have as I you know come aboard to 
be in charge of a site to Mm -hmm. become reacquainted with what the experience of being on the other side of a story is like and being sensitive to to people does it serve as kind of like a I don't know, another reminder that the, the this job that you're taking is, in fact, like the top one and, and the stakes are a little different somehow. Because nobody wrote about me joining Eurogamer's video team in 2015, other than, I guess, Eurogamer. But uh, this is kind of like a, a much different level of role. Yeah, I mean, I keep going back and forth on it. Because on the one hand, it's video games, not that big of a deal. On the other hand, we do have millions of readers and now if anything bad happens it is specifically my fault so in that sense you know the i do sen- feel a sense of gravity and now just constant uh terror i'm trying to look at it as a good thing because if i'm not a little bit scared that i'm probably not doing anything worthwhile is is how i'm trying to look at it was this something you were expecting when you took the job in the first place? Like that new feeling was going to be part of it? Because so I know you had a, obviously you were a culture editor at Polygon and at Virgin, Verge and even at Kotaku you'd been deputy ed before. But like, did you come in with your eyes open on that? They're like, hey, I, this is going to be a different kind of job. Yeah, I mean, I'd had a couple of other opportunities before this one that would not have been quite this big but kind of on the same level in in some ways and at the time I didn't do it because I was a I mean looking back on it now I think is me being a little bit of afraid because when I was younger coming into the field I I think I was very adamant about the idea that like I know that I could do this better uh but I don't know if I'm ever going to be given a chance to prove that um it was such a specific idea in my head and then you know a decade later it finally becomes a possibility and I said no at the time I at the time it was like oh you know I'm I'm dealing with mental health stuff the pandemic it seems like a lot to take on right now and so I said no but now I kind of recognize it was partially fear uh and what ended up happening was I couldn't stop thinking about the opportunity. So then, you know, when another one came by, I was like, I clearly can't live with myself if I say no. So I have to say yes, even though this is going to be scary and terrifying and not just, that sounds so dramatic, but like there are multiple things going on here, right? Like it's not just having increased visibility in front of millions of people and stuff like that. But I don't think it's any secret that the company dynamics that Kotaku is a part of right now are, a little fraught. Uh, both mm-hmm. Kotaku as a site, you know, had a lot of high-level departures, and and the company that uh, owns it, you know, there's always a lot of controversy around. Even in a situation in which everything in the background was perfect, it would have been stressful. But then you had all these other things. So all of this to say, I was uh, very aware going in that this might be a lot. Yeah, I I don't think that sounds overly dramatic at all. Like I would say not that this is something that's easy to measure, but Kotaku and its writers often get, you know, a huge amount of pressure from some of the worst parts of the like of games culture and is that is that part of it as well, like knowing that that you are at the top of that and also need to protect a team that that is that is going to be um in the middle of it too. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a reason it's called Kotaku in action on on Reddit. Um, I feel like Kotaku is one of those things where 
even if I can joke that video games aren't like a big deal, like I'm not coming in to be the editor in chief of, I don't know, the Washington Post or whatever. The people who do read Kotaku tend to have very strong opinions about it, either for or against, like whatever. Like yep. if I told people that I wrote for Polygon, you know, maybe they'll crack a joke or something, but like it's, it feels very neutral. People might not even comment on it, but I feel like the second that you tell someone something about Kotaku, they will start telling you mm-hmm. their opinion on it. Um, trying to explain this to people about how the level of stress that is involved writing for the site is seems completely disproportionate to what the site is. And I knew that. And I think the writers know that. And it's not healthy to focus on, on the negative aspects, but they're also impossible to ignore. So I, I, you know, I want to acknowledge that. I feel like the the negative part of it gets a lot of attention. And I spend a lot of time thinking about it too, just because they might be a minority, but they are a vocal minority and I have to, and I have to deal with that. But on the other hand, I also know that Kotaku has a very devoted like fan base that it's, you know, out of the sites that I have worked for, it is one of the only sites where you can, where the front page itself often has more traffic than any given article on it. Um, yeah, I bet. It's kind of unusual. Yeah, that's not how, how almost any other games media site works, I, I don't think. But it's actually, I guess, yeah, to maybe... Um, Maybe it might be nice to, yeah, to remember not to focus too much on the, or exclusively on the negative part of that. I remember that Kotaku was, is, in my experience, the only games publication that a complete stranger when I was studying in, like, Liverpool he came up to me in a pub, somehow kind of must have clocked that I was into video games and, like, very adamantly recommended that I should go and read Kotaku. And that was the, oh. that was the the site and he was extremely drunk and had a really thick scouse accent and that's a, a strong memory of mine and i you know what he was right but yeah i so i definitely like to talk about the fact that you're the, the new boss and what comes with that but um first actually it might be good to start with your history of the site because it's it's quite a long one like you first started writing for kotaku about a decade ago i think yeah that's very yeah. strange to think about <laughs> well i feel like i turned 18 and then i kind of stopped counting because that was the age that i cared about the most uh right yes it is it has been like a decade and it's funny because well now you have people who are coming up and coming a video game journalist is like their chosen career path from the get-go right like they they go to college or whatever and that's kind of what they have their eyes set on at the time i did that was not like a plan i distinctly remember sitting in class it was like a a class that was that was meant to redesign the school's website in some form and at the time I was studying to be a game developer actually I had been making some some games for school and stuff but I feel like I was always a little bit listless at school and so I started blogging in the middle of of class and kind of building my own site with some other people and kind of looking for writers for for that site and that went on for a while and it was like an interesting cool project I guess like it's always fun when you're doing the thing that you're not supposed to be doing (laughs) Uh, using google wave which is uh, this thing that kind of allowed multiple people to write in a thing at once oh that sounds stressful but I remember just emailing I think it was Joel Johnson who was the 
either the deputy at the time or the EIC just a random thing to see if he wanted to republish it on Kotaku and like he didn't respond initially but then months later he did and then that random cold email kind of started a working relationship between me and Steven Totillo and so I started freelancing for the site um, while I was still in college and then right, like right after I got out of college I just started working for, for the site full time. Yeah, it started in the middle of, of school. I remember being in my dorm room, sometimes writing uh, blog posts for Kotaku and such. Yeah. This this question might take a little bit of setup, so sorry about that. Um, so when I worked at Eurogamer and we would talk about good reporting, which we would do uh, reasonably often, I, I quite enjoyed it. Um, Kotaku was always seen as like a, a gold standard for when it came to like really embedding in a game and covering what its community was up to in the months, maybe years after it might have been released. And for people that maybe don't understand what I'm I'm talking about there, there was a recent story like this last week or two about Hades where like folks have come together and organized this big group reading of the Iliad with like voice actors from the game and streamers. And it's just a cool story. And yet we're well past the peak of you know, the Hades launch. This isn't an official announcement from Supergiant or a preview or a review. It's just a story about the people who care about the game rather than just the game itself. And like that kind of reporting is is on most sites these days. But I also think it's fair to say that Kotaku really helped popularize that kind of article in the first place. And in fact, more than that, it, it was you in like the early 2010s that really led the charge on it. So I guess where did that where did that impulse come from? It might seem like this obvious thing to do now, but it wasn't so obvious back then. Like, what pushed you in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, for all the strong opinion, negative opinions that people have about Kotaku, I feel like it did set the standard for a lot of the ways that in which game sites write about stuff now. Like another example that comes to mind, I think I distinctly remember early on in my career writing about why people should take folks like PewDiePie seriously or when Twitch was like newer than it is now kind of writing about what people on the platform were doing and even just taking the platform seriously. Yeah. And now it's like, you know, if you log into any site, you will probably read something about Twitch. You will pro- I feel like Kotaku is also one of the earliest sites to give a, a shit about like issues in games before you know, people knew who Anita Sarkeesian was, Kotaku was already doing that that sort of work. Uh, and in that sense, I feel like the site does not get nearly enough credit uh, for a lot of the things that, it, you know, now we kind of just take for granted in terms of what makes coverage interesting. Well, I want to give you enough credit anyway, because those conversations I mentioned at, at Eurogamer that we would have were the reason that I you know, stop doing just the video team stuff and started caring more about reporting and what ga- what games reporting could be like. So, like, I can directly trace that route back to, to what you guys were up to. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think when I came into it, I was actually, well, first off, I wasn't trained in reporting at all. Uh, and I kind of learned the rules of reporting the hard way. I think some of my mistakes are very well publicized. But when I came in, what I was interested in was people and more specifically like good writing and a good story. The games are almost always an excuse to talk about people, uh, whether that's someone's obsession or someone's creativity or like whatever it it might be. 
um, this is just, you know, and it, especially because so much of our lives are now unfurling online. I think a lot of the, the things that we see now in terms of like dynamics on, on regular social media apps and stuff like that, um, we saw versions of it in online games to begin with, whether that's the design of, of how apps keep you scrolling uh, or how people interact with with one another uh, when you know they're they're doing so digitally, I think is always is going to be very familiar to anyone who plays a video game, right? Like the the things that happen on on Discord or your mom's recipe group on Facebook probably already unfolded on a on NeoGAF or something or like the Nintendo forums like 10 years ago that that sort of thing yeah so for some people listening who are maybe a bit younger and weren't reading games media back then like this stuff I think it sounds it sounds like of course that's what the games media does like of course that's what the job is it's about you know, talking about issues, finding interesting stories in uh, within games communities. But can you paint a picture of like what 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 that job typically was um, when you first started in like two thousand and eleven, two thousand twelve, and also was it a tough sell even within Kotaku when you were pitching that kind of stuff? Did you have to really really try to get that onto onto the front page, or or yeah, what was the the dynamic with your editors back then? It's almost hard to remember, but. I do recall things kind of just reading more like just straight up press releases or like, you know, the the X title of game was announced and that was like the entire post or like here's the new level in blah blah blah. And like that stuff still happens. Like you need to feed the content machine, but I think no, it was never well, I never really asked for permission usually, so it was very much like, well, I think this is interesting, and I've already written the thing, like how can we find like a good angle on oh wait, so you were writing it before you you weren't having to pitch the story, you were like writing it, and then uh, when i when I was already a staffer it there wasn't really like a a pitching process at first, it was very much like. I'm coming in and I really want to talk about uh, which Pokemon are ugly or something. And yeah. That's what I'm going to do. I did look through some of your earlier stories, by the way. There's there's lots of Dragon Age. I'll tell you that. Uh, fan theories like speedrunning, you, int- you were super interested in that. There's a lot of you in it as well, I thought. Like your experience in, experiences in the games that you play, like you seem quite vulnerable in some of that early writing, I'd, I'd say. I still do some of that writing now still, but... If anything, I wish I could be more vulnerable now, but I think it's it's harder the bigger the platform is. And also, I'm feeling like there there's sometimes like a little bit of a disconnect between some commenters and, and any sort of confessional writing. I like to think that a lot of that, that writing that had to do with me, I was very much aware of like you know, shortcomings that I was describing and stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you put that in front of someone, usually what happens is they're going to judge you and kind of assume the worst possible. Like if you say, like, I don't know, as, as a random, ex- this isn't a thing that happened, but it, let's say if I describe like stealing something, probably I would be writing it with in in my head with the, with the feeling like I know that, that this, this is wrong or whatever. Right. Like, but I, 
I don't think people always make that jump. And part of it, I'm sure, is just if you're young, you don't maybe have the skills to kind of give it the right perspective so that people know how to parse the thing. But I also think, you know, having been on the internet now for a while and kind of going through controversies and stuff, I think has made me a lot more private um, because a lot of that information that was out there, uh, people found ways to either use it against me or to try to figure out, like, you know, who I lived with or who I was friends with. And so, uh, and also... Any any person that I might have mentioned in in that writing, like I think I I was more mercenary when I was growing up because it was very much like what will make the best story. And now I think I'm a little bit more sensitive to the fact that you know I, I'm not just putting myself out there. I'm sometimes putting other people out there, and that's way more uh, complicated. But I do still think that like you know some of the bigger, more ambitious pieces that I would like to do that I haven't done yet usually involve a human, probably me in in some way. I just uh, need to find like a good way of doing it that will uh, minimize harm, Yeah, I guess. I'm sorry that you have to think about it that way. That, that sounds, sounds draining and completely understandable, of course. But yeah, I'm sorry about that. A lot of the things that I'm describing, I don't have to deal with as much now like I feel like uh you know early on in my career when I was writing about feminism and stuff and not to say that I don't do that now but like I feel like there was a time in my career when uh, I was more associated with certain things that like chuds on the internet do not like so there was more of an active effort to like figure out things about me uh and now first of all I'm more behind the scenes generally but i also write about a wider swath of things and like very early on in my career when i was you know like freelance or whatever i've been around long enough that like yeah some of that stuff doesn't follow me but i don't know how how much of it is like because i'm a little bit more like self-conscious about stuff that um it's been easier to like distance myself from harassment because you can't just I don't know, figure out that I was hanging out with this person at this time, at this location. Yeah. I might be reaching uh, uh, here, but um, has that got anything to do with why you haven't haven't written the official, hey, I'm the new boss post? Like, that because you know that when you do, like, some people will have a reaction to, just to, to your name um, being there. Well, I haven't written it because... Well, first off, I'm like sitting down with every Kotaku staffer to kind of talk about um, what they want, what they think we could be doing better, and also kind of outlining to them what I see the future of the site before before you publicly say I it, tell yeah. the rest of the world. And part of it is also kind of trying to wrangle all the complicated thoughts that I have about games journalism and to what degree I want to put that out there. Because the second that I say this is what we are aspiring to, then, then it's out there and we have to, we have to do it. Right. And I think inevitably I will end up putting some of that out there, but it's, it's scary because as a random example, you know, in, in my head, if Steven Totilo posed could talk to you in the past, uh, he would probably have somewhere in there a description about how the site is not interested in hype. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but 
I see a huge disconnect with that and the the things that people feel like we have to cover because we are Kotaku. And to use <clears throat> a very specific example, uh, if we are not interested in hype, then why do we treat E3 as like yeah. such a big, big thing? Like I, I see a disconnect between that or like even just kind of feeling like, how can we tell people things like don't pre-order games or like don't build into the hype when so much of the way that we cover games is is kind of predicated on building pre-release hype or like or or kind of going along with with releases of things right like right now i think if you ask a game editor they would probably say uh it's a little hard to develop content because there's there's not big releases like in the same way because of current there are like reasons for that but there aren't as many big releases this year or last year but in my mind my initial reaction is kind of like well why does a website have to rely on the new thing being released i feel like there's some the pacing of coverage is so very obviously revolving around a marketing plan whether we want to admit it or not I'm curious to learn if it is possible to run a site that is disinterested with all of that. And I think in the back of my head, I know that, the, that there are a variety of very smart, like, you know, I, I look at someone like uh, Chris Planny or Tina Amini, uh, Polygon and IGN respectively. They're like brilliant people. It's not like, you know, they're not that I'm saying that they're doing anything wrong, but like the, there's a reason that websites function in the way that they yep. do. And that's because doing it that way does correlate with traffic. But I also want to believe that a different sort of site is possible. And I look at, you know, um, YouTubers or influencers or whatever. Someone like Video Game Donkey uh, posted this. I don't know what you would call it, but it was like a video on this very old film that like no one had heard of and still like over a million people watched it. So I, I feel like there's clearly a space or like a possibility for that to occur. Can I specifically make that occur given all the, all the stuff around publishing and like, you know, uh, visibility and being beholden to Google search and, and stuff like that. I don't know. And that's part of the reason why it was so scary because like in my head, the best possible version of a video game site does not necessarily look like what the sites out there look, but if it doesn't look that way, what does it look like? And can that actually succeed? I'm afraid the answer might be no, but on the other hand, you know, in media, nothing is uh, a given, right? Like there's, I feel like there's always kind of like the looming fear that there might be layoffs or you might be sold. And if that's the case, why not just go balls out with, you know, the whatever the vision might be? I can't tell you what the vision is, but I just, I, I feel like there's something... There is a different possibility out there, and I don't know what that looks like, but I am curious to... I I want to believe that there's something else possible, and I hope that people want to believe that with me. I feel like uh, what you're talking about here probably isn't so dissimilar from what you might have said when you were, you know, when you were, like, a 20-year-old writer just starting out on Kotaku, and, like, as your old boss said, like changing the way in which video games are being covered and you know 
when I look at your like all the writing you've done, you're one of the examples of someone that has has on an individual level managed to cut through that traditional cycle of like how games are meant to be or not meant to be covered or how they have been covered in the past and found a way to talk about people and what's happening within a games community outside of uh, the marketing cycle. Is the 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 dilemma here that you, you still have that thought now, but finally you're in the position to see if it works. And then that's, that's just uh, an enormous amount of pressure to like finally be in a position to have have a swing at that vision and then see whether or not it works yeah i mean i I think part of the issue is that uh games themselves are tricky to cover even covering a new unreleased game has its own wrinkles or whatever but like even if we're covering like an old game that is that is still updating or or whatever the amount of time that a writer has to put in to be knowledgeable about a thing tends to be kind of high and a lot of people won't look at it as work because you're playing a game, but it is work. But even even taking that out of the equation, just the the naked hours of it do not quite match up. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think the capital G gamer might say like a, a game with like 60 to 80 hours of content is like a good deal or whatever. And it is true, but then you look at kind of what we do and it's like, we're not just covering one game, we're covering multiple games and on any given week and like how do you how do you fit all these like eighty hour games into a sixty hour week in which you are also expected to report and all this other stuff. So I, I think in some senses it's not just that it is an ambitious idea, it's that how do I make this hard, ambitious idea happen while also giving my writers a realistic workload that does not have video games just completely taking over their life and I think it's especially a concern for mine because like early on in my career I feel like I was able to get ahead as much as I did because I basically gave away my my life to games and it's worked out for me but I don't want to see that for other people right the the short answer is I'm trying to figure out how to make the most kick-ass version of a site while also having like a a good workplace that kind of gives you time to digest and write the best possible thing. I mean, I'm only a few weeks into it, so I'm I'm like I don't know that I've solved that problem yet, but it it is, I don't think people quite realize the amount of hours that just have to go into something and to even just be able to talk about it in a knowledgeable way. And it's it's also hard because, like, our primary competition, if, I mean, I don't know if that's the right word, tend to be YouTubers and influencers who are almost wholly focused on whatever the franchise is or the, you know, the Reddit or whatever. But, like, think about that. If someone can make their entire career around Destiny 2 or, like, whatever... Uh, and on an, any given day, a game reporter comes in and Destiny 2 is maybe just like one of the five things that they have to cover. It's, uh, yeah, I, I don't think people quite realize just how how hard that actually is. And I think that's also part of where the disconnect comes from, like kind of feeling like game journalists don't really know what they're talking about or like whatever. And I think it's because people don't realize that our job in some ways is to be 
be knowledgeable, but also be kind of like grazers, right? Because otherwise, it's it's unsustainable for the writer as as much as anything, right? I, yeah, I think that that's to your credit that you're talking about it in that way. Like the the two sites I've worked at before, people make games. I, I've had great bosses at both of them, but like I don't remember that ever being a conversation. Like the the idea of how do we make sure we're doing the best work here and ahead of all the rest of our competition, which is what everyone wants to be doing usually, but without sinking your entire life into it which at both of my last jobs I sort of did and yeah so I think I'm like pleased to hear that that's something that, that you're talking about right off the bat um, anyway you mentioned earlier that yeah, you've sort of arrived as editor-in-chief at a an interesting or, or difficult certainly important time for for the site are we able to talk at all about the the article that that you removed when you first started uh I have been asked not talk about it but what i will say is i think it is important to consider when people talk about um the rules of journalism or journalism as an institution who those rules actually protect i am in some ways not invested in the idea of journalism as an institution when considering the power structures not in terms of like as an institution, I recognize that we have power and we have a duty to tell the truth and all that. Like, I am not interested in journalism as an institution in terms of the power structures that it tends to uphold. Speaking about it very abstractly, um, I also think, you know, there are changing ideas around people's rights. I don't know if privacy is the right word, but like, I think a survivor should have some sort of say in terms of how their story is is told out there. Um, which I will also say it was a very complicated situation that I'm not really allowed to go into detail. Um, I will say that I think everyone tried their best, uh, including myself. I don't think everyone is 100% happy with the way things unfolded, but... Um, I didn't see a different way out. I, I, I feel like to anyone paying attention to that uh, situation, it was very evident that there was the danger of of self-harm, and I don't think mm-hmm. I could have... I can live with myself uh, even potentially at, at all thinking that I might have had a hand in that. So, yep. tried our best. Uh, I'm sure it will spark off a lot of debates about journalism and how people cover things and what is the right thing to do in those situations. I'm not really, uh, I feel like the fact that it can be a debate at all is like profoundly fucked up. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. Sorry if this, if this question is as blunt at all, it's not meant to be, but, um, how much of your job right now is, is kind of about restoring people's faith in Kotaku I don't just mean in reference to that article but yeah you mentioned earlier that we last year we saw several senior members of the team leave and as they did so they basically said fuck you to the some of the corporate ownership uh, decisions that, that were being made and not on Twitter but within their leading posts on the site where does where does that leave you coming in as the new editor well yeah on the one hand it's uh it is a very complicated situation and I do think in in some senses my job is to come try to fix it to whatever degree that one can do that given the circumstances mm-hmm. 
uh, I also, in a weird way, think that I would not have been given this opportunity until or because things are, are this bad, if that makes any sense. I don't think I'm, you know, as... And I, I don't say this in a self-deprecating way, but just kind of looking at the type of person who gets hired for these roles does not tend to look or sound like me. So in, in some senses, while I, I hate this, the situations that brought the site to this point, I also do think in, in some ways I have ended up benefiting from it. I feel like part of the reason that I left in the, in the first place uh, when I was deputy was like, yeah, theoretically I'm next in line, but if Kotaku keeps being this successful in this way, I don't see Steven ever leaving because where do you where do you go? Um Right. So I think in in some ways this this was the only way in which I I could have this role. So I'm trying to make the the best of it and in in some senses I don't see it as like restoring people's faith in Kotaku as much as I want to challenge what people think Kotaku can be and like, you know, evolve what this, what the site is uh, in terms of coverage. Like I, I think uh, over the last few years, Kotaku is very invested in kind of being taken seriously as a, as a reporting entity, right? Like there are a lot of big mm-hmm. stories that it has broken uh will we be able to continue that specifically i can't say you know i'm kind of in a rebuilding phase and uh a news team is a is a part of that but i also yeah i i think i i see my job as kind of the only way that i see it as like restoring what kotaku used to be is in terms of like maybe readership like i definitely think we can be bigger than what we currently are and what we currently are was kind of the result of not having leadership for like the last however yep. many months uh, and changes to the site on the background and stuff like that. So I do think there's some rebuilding to be done, but I'm curious uh, to what degree that still looks like the, the Kotaku of, of old. Maybe actually I want to, I, I sort of paraphrased it earlier, but I want to um, read the sentence that, Stephen Tatillo, your your predecessor, when he was talking about you, which was in her first run at Kotaku, she did nothing less than change the way video games are covered. I feel like uh, in terms of bringing someone on board to try and accomplish what you're talking about and try and change what Kotaku is and have people challenge uh, challenge people's assumptions about what Kotaku is, is meant to be, that suggests that you are the right person for it. And um, yeah. I, I I feel like yeah, I hope so. <laughs> if I wanted to bring someone on board to come and change Kotaku all over again, uh, you'd be right at the top of that list. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, I recognize that some of these ideas are very lofty and don't quite jive with the fact that, uh, say, as an example, management really loves slideshows and we're doing slideshows. But, uh, you know, uh, I also think we are not at our... 100% best mm-hmm. right now so it, it'll be interesting to kind of see what the site is when well as a random example we're not fully staffed right now right so I would like to think that at our most at our best at our most powerful uh, the site can do things that aren't just like expected or like the, th- the things that we have to do to survive uh, you know 
I guess uh, maybe a, a final question. And if, if as you said, the, the the more recent years of Kotaku have been defined in some ways by it being a site that can be taken seriously and that is known for, I guess, investigative reporting and and big expose work. If you were to come back on this podcast, not a show, in in a year or two or maybe five, like what what would you like the Patricia Hernandez era of of Kotaku to be defined by? Like what would the what were the kind of words that you would want people to use when they're describing it? Well, it's funny because uh, I almost don't want people to t- take it seriously. And what I mean by that is that it is fascinating to me to what degree, uh, you know, we are dealing with things that are arguably fun, but it is very hard to have fun on the page and I think people get very mad at some of the stuff that Kotaku does because they feel that we should be carrying ourselves with more grace or like more seriously like how can we publish both how can we uh, expect people to take it seriously when we write like a report on this uh, I don't know a sexism occurring somewhere or something and then also write a a slideshow about um, which characters might go down <laughs> I was on literally someone. just about to say that uh, oh I can't find the uh the type the headline that you went with uh it's, yeah, it's it, but yeah no I okay so uh, sorry I interrupted your point there for those readers I kind of wish they understood that uh if video games are fun then we should be able to have fun with them and I feel like we afford the liberty of being a human being to people that like are influencers right like gaming youtubers or whatever they can literally literally say um the most offensive things and you know people will give them like a a second chance and we we cannot joke we cannot do we cannot print a joke without it like being a a bigger deal than it actually is but all all of this said i would just kind of hope that um we we make a site where we kind of redefine find what you think is a Kotaku story. The thing that I kind of keep coming back to is this idea of it's not that video games are huge and they're everywhere, although that is true and it is true that there's a ton of money in video games, but I also think being in this space uniquely affords us the ability to understand a lot of other things, right? Like if you are savvy in video games and their communities, then you inherently kind of also understand other types of online communities. Like right now, I feel like a lot of online life is unfolding not on, uh, I don't know, standard social media, but like on Discord. And Discord is a started out as a, as a game-focused thing and no longer is. But I, I think even not just stretching the definition of like, well, you know, as a, as a random example, like uh, you look at things like... Um, Duolingo, it has achievements, daily achievements. It has a leaderboard. Like you wouldn't consider that a game, but I also feel like it is not only designed and with the same sort of principles, but you end up getting a lot of the same dynamics. Like my girlfriend is trying to learn Spanish right now, and she's talking to me about like fighting people out of the leaderboard <laughs> so that she can advance to the next stage or whatever. And like, that's, I understand what she's talking about because I play games, but would you read a story about Duolingo on a, on a video game site? I'm not entirely sure that you would. 
I see that in a lot of different things, whether that's people trying to figure out how to cheat on Peloton leaderboards or, um, you know, uh, not that Foursquare is a thing anymore, but like maybe like Strava or something, you're you're fighting over uh, a route or something, stuff like that. By reading Kotaku and better understanding games culture, you can you can better understand like how it's affecting the world around it. Yeah, I mean, I think games are a microcosm, sometimes very literally, right? Because games recreate the world and have their own like little, you know, you can go on GTA Online or FF14 and literally buy a house in a neighborhood or like whatever. Um, So in that sense, it very literally kind of replicates some parts of the world. But I also, yeah, I think because games involve tech they equip us to be able to better understand tech in general uh, whether that's the technology like uh you know a lot of a lot of stuff that epic develops is now being used for things like um uh the mandalorian tv right, shows yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah, that like whether we're talking about the tech mm-hmm. or whether we're talking about um i don't know a community uh, online and, and people bickering online will, I I think, be legible to anyone who was on who has been on Xbox Live and has had to kind of just hear someone arguing in in their ear. Basically, I think I would like to kind of look at Kotaku as a way of describing or talking about our our digital lives uh, in whatever form that might take and also kind of looking at power in these digital structures like the I would say the modern celebrity is an influencer and a lot of those personalities have something to do with games mm-hmm. or use the same I, I feel like even just becoming famous now using the tools that are out there i.e. social media is literally treated like a game yeah. like people know the rules of the things that you have to follow to to get clicks or like whatever like I just think games are a useful framework to understand nearly anything you can imagine, whether that's going viral and like kind of trying to game the system or if that's, you know, trying to learn a language on on an app that will ding you if you uh, don't log in every day to do your daily. But you wouldn't think of it as a daily. But <laughs> yeah, I I think in, in short, I would five years from now, I would hope that uh a family member could click on the site and not be completely lost by every single story that's on, on the site. Uh, the the article that I was uh, looking to find, by the way, was which E3 character is the most cunning linguist by Ash Parrish, yeah. which is <laughs> awesome and totally yeah. cheered me up at the end of a slightly odd digital uh, version of the the show. Uh, Patricia, thank you so much for, for talking to me. Um, yeah, and once again, congratulations on the job. And yeah, maybe... Maybe we can have that uh, look back at uh, Kotaku in a in a, a little while once once you've had time to actually write your um, <laughs> your introduction post and talk to the staff and and figure out what's what's going on. I hope I and the site are still around in five years, which sounds ominous, but you know, <laughs> in media you never know. That's true. That's true. Well, I hope so too. And yeah, maybe we'll, we'll catch up then. 
Thank you so much for listening to this second episode and for all the support you've shown the podcast on Twitter and in iTunes reviews and all the rest. It's really, really appreciated. And yeah, quick reminder, if you would like to chuck us a few quid and help us do what we do, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash people make games. See you next time. Thank you.